Well, good morning, Grace people. Good to be with you today. You know, one of my favorite Christian leaders these days is a man by the name of Ed Stetzer, and Ed Stetzer often sends out a little word of encouragement, and he has a kind of common phrase that he uses for pastors. He says, may we make much of Jesus. May we make much of Jesus. And that is my hope and prayer today, is that in all that we do and all that we say and all that I share today, we make much of Jesus today. Amen? Amen. Yes. Well, happy Reformation Sunday. You may have heard that uh, being said a few times here today. What's this all about? What's this Reformation thing about? Well, today is when we commemorate the Reformation of the Christian Church over 500 years ago. Well, what was reformed? What needed reforming? What was formed in the first place that needed reforming? What was this all about? What's about the church? It's about the church, the church that needed reform and always needs reform. At this particular time, 500 years ago, the church needed reforming. It needed the good news message of God and of of life and, and truth in Jesus Christ to be proclaimed loudly, and instead it was being drowned out by the ambitions of a church that was seeking power and position in the world. May we make much of Jesus. May we make much of Jesus. That's what needs to be reformed. It's what always needs to be reformed because it is always and constantly a temptation of the church. But a lowly German monk by the name of Martin Luther raised his voice to declare and proclaim that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the word of God alone to the glory of God alone. Important words, words that we hold to and cling to today. Grace through faith. What a great message that is and one that we need. Thanks, Martin. Appreciate it. Even 500 years later, still appreciate it. Love that message. You know, Martin did a few things in the church. One of the things that he loved about being a part of the church was music. He loved music, enjoyed singing it, and enjoyed choirs. He thought that anybody who sings prays twice. He felt like it was just such an incredible blessing. And as a part of that, he actually wrote a number of hymns. One of those hymns uh, is one that's pretty familiar to being sung on this day or on other days in Lutheran churches. It's called A Mighty Fortress. Heard a little bit about it before. A Mighty Fortress is our God. It's a wonderful, powerful song. It's full of imagery and metaphors of God who fights for us, protects us, ultimately wins the battle for our eternal souls. It's a good message. He is a mighty fortress for us. Now, ask you a question. Have you ever actually seen a real fortress, like a fortress in person, or maybe went and visited one? I got an image here that I can show you of, of a fortress. That's, that's not a picture that I took. That's not a place that I've been. I found it on the internet. <laughs> but it is a fortress, right? It's, it's pretty impressive, yeah? You, you got the ramparts. You got spots for defense. It's strong. It's mighty. Everything about it just, just gives a vision of, of power, of strength, of force, and of might. And of course, there are many different kinds of fortresses. There are castles and citadels. There are bunkers and towers and palaces. And we find in the Bible a number of places where God is compared to these mighty buildings. Like in Psalm 46:11, which we already heard from, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. A great image of strength. Then there's Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Good, another great image of of the strength of God. 
in an image of a, of a tower. And then Psalm 61.3, these words of David where he says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. That imagery of, of God as a fortress and strength. Images of buildings and strong towers. But there's another building that the Bible speaks of with great detail. And this building would come to symbolize so much of the story of God's people, Israel. And that building was called the temple. The temple. And we have come to an important point in the journey that we've been on starting this fall in Route 66. And if you've been with us since we began in September, you'd know that we've been working our way through the grand story of the Bible by hearing the individual stories of God's interactions with some key people in order to reveal his rescue plan for all people, how he wants to be that strong tower for everyone, that place to run to and be safe and be saved. It's an unfolding story, and we've come to an important part in that story. You can get caught up with where we've been in the story if you want to. You can go back and check out on our website or on our YouTube site and review some of these sermons and, and get up to speed. But, but today, we're going to be stepping into First Kings, First Kings. If you've got your Bible with you today, you can open up to First Kings. It's in the Old Testament, towards the front part of the book, First Kings. And I want to give you a little bit of background before we start reading in First Kings chapter 3. Last week, we learned about King David, the warrior king, who was also the man after God's own heart, the one who expanded the territory of God's people and established them fully in the land God had promised. And even though an earthly kingdom or earthly kings was not God's first choice. And even though David was a flawed and sinful human being like us all, God chose to use him anyway and to establish a permanent dynasty through David's family. Well, after David's death, one of his sons, Solomon, becomes king of Israel. And when Solomon was a young man, he had a dream, and in this dream, he had a request of God. And that's where we catch up on the story in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. You can follow along as I read. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that you will, there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me, and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. Solomon, this young king, asks for something of God in a dream. And he doesn't ask for riches or might or power or the defeating of his enemies. Instead, he says, Lord, give me a humble and discerning heart. Give me wisdom 
so that I know how to lead and guide these people who you have given me to govern. And God grants this humble request given to him from a humble heart and gives wisdom in, in boatloads to Solomon and so much more. And with this wisdom from God, Solomon begins his reign. And as he begins his reign, he feels the call to complete or actually begin and then complete a project that was given to him from his father David. And we catch up with that story in chapter 5. So please, again, just keep listening. Follow along with me if you want to page forward a couple pages to chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. King Solomon is going to build a mighty temple, which would serve as a symbol of Israel's national and religious power, which were both kind of merged and combined together into that role of king in Israel. This was something about the ancient world that often occurred in the ancient world, where, where this political power, this, this leadership authority, as well as this religious role in the community was held by one person and was embodied in the king. And that was certainly the case for Solomon. And through Solomon's wisdom and his wise dealings as a leader with his neighbors, he creates trade agreements to acquire the huge amounts of materials necessary to build this mighty temple. Now, I'm not going to read to you for the next several chapters of 1 Kings because I encourage you to go read them your own because they're filled with details about the building of the mighty temple for God. Tons of gold, mountains of stone, forests of timber, the finest workmanship, and seven years of labor to build this mighty temple for God, a permanent structure meant to focus the attention of all Israel toward worship and to garner the attention of all the neighboring kingdoms around Israel. This was supposed to be the pinnacle. They're in the promised land. They're secure. Their enemies have been defeated. It's time to settle down. It's time to, to build this mighty spectacle that will tell the world how mighty God is and how mighty Israel is. But there was a problem. God never asked for a temple. God never asked for a temple. In fact, if we go back in the story, we see that King David, towards the end of his years, comes before the Lord and says, Lord, I want to build a great house for you, something to bear your name. 
And God's response is, eh. You know, David, um, I've been just fine being with my people in the tabernacle. In this tent, you know, remember that tent? Where I said I would be present and where I often showed up to be present. Remember that place? I was perfectly content there. I don't need you to build me a house. Instead, I want to build a house for you. And there was a little play on words there that he was saying. He didn't mean that he was actually going to physically build a house for David. What he meant is that he was going to build David's house, which meant his dynasty, a kingdom that would reflect God's heart. Remember David being the man after God's own heart. He, he wanted to, to build through David a kingdom on earth that would reflect who God is. This is important to remember. God didn't ask for a temple. Now, ultimately, God said, okay, if you really want to build me a temple, David, you're not going to build it. <laughs> Instead, I'll have your son build it. He'll build this temple. He acquiesced. He said, okay, if you really want this, if you really think this is important, fine, but don't forget who this is about. It's, it's about me, David. It's about me, Solomon. Why was this so important? Because earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, no matter how wise and noble they may appear, will always be subject to human sinfulness, pride, arrogance, corruption, power, and deceit. Every one of them. God knew that when his people spent all their time focusing on a temple, on the where and the how of worship, they would eventually forget about the who of worship. If they made it all about this temple, if they made it all about this kingdom, it would fall if it lost the focus on the who, on God himself. God warned Samuel about this when they asked for a king. God warned David about this when he wanted to build a house. And God warned Solomon. And we hear his warning in 1 Kings chapter 9, starting at verse 1. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and the plea you have made before me, I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eye and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But, oh, here comes the but. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, 
Then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. And this is exactly what would come to pass. And interestingly, there's foreshadowing that's happening all throughout the story of the temple being built. Just a quick little sidebar here. The temple took seven years to build and was a particular size and ornate and beautiful and gorgeous and everything else. And at the same time that Solomon is having this temple built, Solomon's building a little palace for himself. It's twice as big and takes twice as long to complete. Hmm. Do you think God knows what the tendencies of human hearts are, even amongst wise kings? You bet he does. Solomon the wise would foolishly set up altars to other gods all over the promised land. And within one generation, Israel would be divided against itself. Eventually, the temple would be destroyed and God's people would be lost because as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. This would be Israel's repeating story for the next 1,000 years. One king after another, some better than others, every one of them never measuring up to the one true king. Over and over again, good kings, bad kings, wars, corruption, idolatry, and occasionally seasons of reformation and restoration punctuated in the middle of continued evil and division and destruction. And this entire kingdom would fall, being split and divided, much of it to be dispersed out into the world to never be heard from again, others being hauled off to Babylon in shame and in chains. Why? Why does this become this repeated pattern? Because you will never get a perfect kingdom with imperfect kings. It'll never happen. It didn't work then, and it won't work now. Some of you may have heard, there's an election happening in nine days. Who knew? And some of you may have heard from some people around you that it's the most important election in history of the world, or at least since the last election, or the election before that, or the one before that, the one before that. Don't buy into the fear, and don't buy into the hype. Go, vote your conscience, and pray for peace. I encourage you to do that. But don't think for one minute you are going to advance the kingdom of God or his agenda or bring revival by voting for some more earthly kings or queens. It's not happening. It's never happened. 
in the history of the world. It doesn't work that way. And God spent a thousand years showing his people time and time and time again how this isn't going to work and how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget. That's why Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You see, there is a king, one true king, the one who has always desired to be our king. It is God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And he ain't up for election And friends, the most important election in all history occurred 2,000 years ago when God elected to show his grace to you through his son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and claim you into his family through faith. That's the election that matters more than any other. Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. We must be reminded of that because this kingdom that that God wants. It's a kingdom of his heart. It's a kingdom where he, where he writes his commands within our hearts and loves us as his own children. The one and only perfect king. That's the kind of king that we have. And as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. If we want to see and experience God's kingdom, we follow the king, Jesus. And we follow the way that he led. Which brings me to another thing about following Jesus. <laughs> and that's related to this temple here. You see, you will never get a perfect church by perfecting your worship styles or your building <laughs> or your programs or any of those things. Not that those things are inconsequential or that they don't matter. I love good worship whether it's contemporary worship or modern worship or traditional worship, classic worship, whatever you want to call it. It's good, it's wonderful, but, but listen. The church has spent so much time debating about buildings and worship services and worship styles. All the hows, whens, and wheres of worship. For years. And it hasn't brought revival. It hasn't brought lasting growth. It's not entirely unimportant, but hear me when I say this. If we spend more time talking about how, when, and where we worship than we do talking about who we worship, we have missed the entire point of evangelism and discipleship. If your first instinct on Sunday morning is to wonder whether or not they're going to play your favorite song or whether your favorite singer is going to be up there or whether there's going to be enough organ or enough electric guitar, listen, I beg you, Wake up and say, I want to worship Jesus today with God's people. That's what I've come to do. However it is that God has equipped and gifted this group of people to do that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to worship Jesus today. And Jesus himself emphasized this when talking to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. 
who was asking questions of him of like, well, you know, is it best that we worship here on this mountain? Are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem? I'm just not quite sure. Where is it that we're supposed to do it? How are we supposed to worship where and when to get it right? And Jesus' response is, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. It's not about a location. It's not about a style. It's not about a time. It's about Jesus. And it's about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Ones who want to to seek after him and want to be where he is present. Friends, Jesus calls us to a different understanding of kings and kingdoms and temples. Jesus comes as the Messiah, the one true king who is the son of God. And he comes to establish a kingdom that transcends and transforms every earthly kingdom. And he comes to establish a temple of flesh and blood of which he is the head and all of us are his body, which is also described as living stones being fitted together to be his body, to be his temple. Here's the thing. As I look around this room, I see all kinds of beautiful parts of that temple. Young, old, male, female, loving Jesus, desiring to be in his presence, hear his word, follow his heart, and be a people of his kingdom. That's what I see. And it's a beautiful thing, friends. And it doesn't matter which room we're in or what time we meet. When God's people are together as his temple, following our one true king and worshiping him, and desiring to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's a beautiful thing. And there are signs of that all over this place. Because it's you. It's you. And as I look around this room and see the beauty of what Jesus declared, I hear what he said when he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's good news. Jesus is our king, and he's not up for election. Jesus is our fortress, and we are safe in his strong arms. Jesus is the only one we worship as a temple built of living stones. Let's be that temple. Let's focus on Jesus himself. Let's make much of Jesus here, there, everywhere, and at all times as his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, that darkness isn't some place out there. It's the darkness within us that clouds our minds and confuses us from from understanding who you really are and what you really desire. And Lord, it's It's not earthly kingdoms filled with earthly power trying to domineer over one another. Father, it's it's a kingdom where Jesus alone is king and a king who comes to serve, to serve us by bending a knee, 
taking up a towel, washing the feet of his disciples. That's the example you give us, Lord. Not a kingdom of earthly power, but a kingdom of heavenly power that looks like Jesus. Help us, Lord, to become what it is that you are calling us, what you have already declared that we are, your family, your kingdom, your friends, your children. Help us in becoming that more and more today, Lord, as we trust in you in all things. We pray this all today in Jesus' name. Amen.